Welcome to Supply Chain Now, the voice of global supply chain. Supply Chain Now focuses on the best in the business for our worldwide audience, the people, the technologies, the best practices, and today's critical issues, the challenges, and opportunities. Stay tuned to hear from those making global business happen right here on Supply Chain Now. Hey, good morning. Scott Luton and Jenny Froome with you here at Supply Chain Now. Welcome to today's show. Jenny, on today's show, we're continuing our supply chain leadership across Africa and beyond with this episode here today, of course, in conjunction with our dear friends at SAPIX. Jenny Froome serves as COO of SAPIX, uh, doing wonderful work from a professional development, a networking, a connectivity, and in and a lot more uh, standpoint with the team over at SAPIX. You can check them out at SAPIX.org. Jenny, good morning. How are you doing? Good morning. Good afternoon. Doing well. The sun is shining and it's a great day. Wonderful. You know, maybe I haven't noticed it, but the zebra painting behind you, is that a new one or is that, or have I been blind in previous interviews? You've been blind in previous <laughs> interviews. Okay. No, it's been, there, it's been there for a while, actually, since we did the ASCA conference last year. We put up something to reflect the fact that I'm sitting in South Africa and well, not in England or otherwise. <laughs> I love it. We'll have to talk more. In fact, I've learned from our dear mutual friend, Laura Ciceri, that zebras do indeed change their stripes, contrary to many assumptions. But we'll, we'll save that for a later, later episode. Hey, quick programming note, folks. Uh, you're going to love today's conversation with uh, a wonderful guest. Uh, but don't, you don't want to miss these. So make sure you find Supply Chain Now wherever you get your podcast from. Click subscribe so you don't miss a single thing. Okay, let's dive into, Jenny, this wonderful guest we've got here today. Uh, I'm going to share a couple of things about his journey, and then we're going to bring him right on in. Uh, we try to keep the cat in the bag, so to speak. Our guest today is an award-winning and serial entrepreneur. He was named to Time Magazine's Innovations List for 2019. He received the MIT Innovate for Refugees Award the Young uh, Global Leader Award from the World Economic Forum, and many, many others. I had, the, it was like a, the yellow pages of uh, accomplishments and awards. I had to cherry pick a bit, Jenny. Our guest's current venture was named one of the top innovations for circular economy by the World Economic Forum and Accenture. So with no further ado, I want to welcome in Ashish Godness, co-founder and CEO of Bank U. Ashish, how you doing? Good morning. Thank you. I'm doing good. Thank you to both of you for this incredible opportunity. Feel very blessed. Thank you. Well, you know, Jenny, sometimes our pre-show conversations last, you know, and as long as the interview. And we could have easily, I feel, spent that time because Ashish has got he's got this this uh radiance. Energy. Yes, mm-hmm. this energy. And you know, we all love to be in person these days, and we'll talk about that momentarily, but it comes right on through the yeah. platform here, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, even in still photos on LinkedIn, in the interviews that you do, you don't have to say a word. There's just a positivity that that kind of emanates from you. So thank you for sharing that with us. And that's important. We need that in truckloads here these days. But Ashish, before we get into what you're up to now uh, and, and uh, some of the ways you are changing the world and getting out and seeing the world, frankly, let's talk about your background. So tell us about yourself. Let's start with that universal question. Hey, where'd you grow up? Um, so I grew up in Mumbai, India, um, a long time ago. I'm old, as you can tell. Um, <laughs> and I grew up poor in India, but I'm not poor anymore. So I feel very fortunate to be here. So Jenny and I, we love food. And we, we tout that in a couple of different ways. But we got to talk about the food 
growing up in Mumbai. What what stands out really in your mind uh, as a kid? Oh, you know, we didn't have much. So I think the the thing that always jumped out to me was, you know, once uh, every three to four months, my mom and dad would have a little bit of money and I could buy the icy that was sold on the streets. It's probably the most unhygienic thing to eat, but <laughs> I, I ate it at once, one popsicle equivalent every three months or so. And it was heaven, man. It was absolutely heaven. I got sick afterwards, obviously, but it's worth it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, we can relate. And Jenny, I'm, I'm not sure what, conjures up in your mind but as a kid when i grew up these chili willies they were in every freezer in the southeast of the u.s i think and uh we'd fight over the flavors me and my and my my siblings and my cousins but that was a big part of our uh, upbringing as well jenny how about you i can remember growing up in a couple of years growing up in the states and i've got an overriding memory of popsicles that came on two sticks that you split in half and we were always supposed to share them, but I never did. So I always had to have both sticks. <laughs> uh, like so creamsicles cool. or something. and and Something like that. Yeah, I love that. Long time um, ago, 60s. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing, Ashish. And let's, so one other question. So obviously the, the icy, whether it was a healthy snack or not, was, was a, a memory that stood out for you. Uh, and I can appreciate your your very humble upbringings. I think many of us, even that are listening, can relate to that as well. What else? What other experience really sticks out that became a tradition for you or your family as you were growing up in India? Honestly, I don't know if it was a experience tradition-wise, but I hated being poor. You know, that was it's just deeply in my heart where you know I had to stand in the ration line to get you know wheat, rice, and oil. You know, and and it just kind of stayed with me. But I realized later on in life, as I started doing the work I do today, I spent some time in the DRC in Congo, and my poverty in India was relatively different. So I look back and go, that was like, I was upper middle class compared to a kid in, in Beni, Congo, who does not even have a glass of clean water. So it's all relative. So that's a memory that kind of just stays with me forever. That is one of the most powerful lessons learned in today's conversation. And it's interesting that you called that out because that's what I was thinking about as I was com- you know, comparing, contrasting my own earlier journey. You know, that context is so important. You know, what you think, and I try to instill that in my three kids, you know, you've, you've got it really good, uh, you know, and, and it, it is all relevant, right? Our definition of going without here. Uh, is is going to be much different than other places around the world. And gosh, you got to appreciate what you have for sure. Absolutely. All right. So Jenny, there's so many things I feel like we could we could talk with Ashish about. A lot of kindred spirits, I think, on, in on this panel here. But where are we headed next? As you say, you're old. I think we're all <laughs> up the wrong the wrong side of thirty. Anyway, <laughs> let's put it that way. But you've obviously done a lot more in your life than bank you. So what are a couple of key roles that have led you to where you were to when you wanted to start up bank you? Absolutely. You know, the, the two key roles, one's a role and one's an incident. I kind of put them hand in hand, right? One role was, you know, I, I grew up poor. So my dad said, you can code or you can beg. And I'm not, you know, I'm Indian, so I make fun of Indians. So I started coding, right? And that's that. So that's kind of helped me tremendously in terms of understanding systems and, you know, what I call data democracy, which is the work, work kind of what I do today. That's key. But the other piece that kind of stayed with me was the bankability, bankability or the lack of bankability. And is the easiest way to explain is when I came to the United States in 1994, came legally, if anybody's listening, you never know, right? Just <laughs> say that up front. <laughs> Just, you know, man, we, it's a different day and age. So came legally, 
But at $240, and I think that's a critical component that it's all relative, as I said, right? At the end of the first month, my boss said, you need to open a bank account. And for me, it was like 1994. I'm like, are you kidding, right? I was like, that's awesome, right? And he said, yeah, take your rent receipt, take your pay stub, take the light bill, and they'll let you open a bank account. This was in Boston in 1994. And I was able to open a bank account, which is kind of like sounds so ordinary to you know people around the world, at least in the first world. But for me, that was kind of this pivotal moment where somebody recognized my existence. Mm. Yet, and you know, we'll talk about this a little bit later, 20 years later, I had the same incident happen to me, but there was somebody else on the other end of the conversation who was refused a bank account. And, and I think it's kind of that understanding of systems and not being able to be banked or banked is kind of has, those are the two things that have really shaped my thinking. I hope that helps. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it really does. I, I I remember when we first came to South Africa and I'm from England originally and it was 1995 and I was absolutely amazed that women were not allowed to have bank accounts. And it's just something that, you know, from a privileged upbringing, you just take for granted. And so, yeah, and 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 that that concept of somebody actually appreciating you for being there right. is really humbling. Yeah. So we're going to talk about bank you in just a second, but you know, as Jenny referenced and as re- I referenced in uh, our introduction of you, you know, bank you is just your latest venture. You know, it looks like there's been a lot of uh, initiatives and ventures and projects and businesses that you've been part of. Has there been a common thread? That, that really energizes you amongst the ventures that you do, you know, jump into and lead and start and found? Or what is it? What is it that attracts you, Ashish, mm-hmm. to what you're involved in? To be honest, I mean, everything that I, you know, I've done up until I started BenQ was anchored in one single thing, which is what I do today, which is, you know, I had this crazy idea when I was 15 that I want to end extreme poverty. Mm-hmm. And everything I did um, you know, as I got out of poverty myself, started building companies, sold my last startup in 2012, it was all, you know, a lot of people talk about the journey, right? And I'll be honest, for me, it was the destination. It's like, I need to get to a point in life where I can afford to end extreme poverty. Mm. Um, and, and so that's kind of, you know, all my ventures and everything. I loved what I did. You know, I built and sold companies, did a lot of good work for big companies, all in systems. But it was always this goal I had someday, if Lord willing, I'll be able to start working on ending extreme poverty. Love it. I love that. Um, all right. So one final question before we start talking about bank you, that exit, big exit. I think if I read your bio correct, you sold your that last um, venture that you led to a really large global company. That was, a, of course, uh, I can only imagine what I would do on a day like that where you're celebrating the good news and, and the culmination of all this hard work. But what's one thing that sticks out from that day when, when you made that, you know, when you closed the deal, what'd you do? What'd you do to celebrate? Um, you know, honestly, I think, I don't know if I did anything to celebrate other than it was this deep sigh of relief that I said, you know, I can really now start 2.0, mm. which is what I'd worked for all my life. Love that. Now with that backdrop, uh, now you're, 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 you're <laughs> Look doing. Look at his face change. Yeah. You see, now he doesn't want to talk about himself. He wants to talk about what it is that's his true passion. I love it. Well, you know, as a fellow founder, I, there's a lot that I'd love to ask you about when we'll say that offline, because I, I think there's a lot of that entrepreneurial spirit that's core to who you are. That's part of the passion. It's part of the drive. It's part of the purpose that, that makes up who you are. And I think that is absolutely fascinating. 
um, as I look at, at entrepreneurs and, and, and hear what makes them tick. So Jenny, I don't know if that stands out for you as well, but um, it's intriguing. So let's talk about Bank You. So first, let's talk about that story. You referenced it a moment ago, but you didn't give the whole thing. So tell us about what's behind the name for Bank You. So, you know, when I sold that last startup in 2012, you know, I, I wanted to do something, but I didn't want to give away money and start a philanthropy because I'm a big believer that pity is actually bad, um, you know, and, and in my opinion, right? And, and pity degrades somebody's dignity, right? If you're poor, I don't care. I need to treat you one-on-one as a human being and with the same dignity and respect. So I, I was just looking for things and I became the volunteer CEO for a USAID program. And I landed in the Congo, <laughs> in the DRC, first time in Africa, first country in Africa, and I was in the DRC. And it, it, it completely devastated me, just being very honest here. You know, I had this giant ego, you know, and I still have, everybody has an ego, but I had this massive head that said, oh, you know, I'm, I can go cure poverty because, you know, I just sold my startup, blah, blah, blah. And I was so, so, so wrong because what I saw in the DRC was something that I could not have imagined actually existed. You know, you read about uh, children dying in the streets and cholera camps. I mean, you know, Ingeni, you're from Africa now, you know, in the DRC is one, of, it's the heart of darkness as they call it, right? Um, so I started working with local farmers, um, you know, who were growing barley crops and, you know, potatoes and stuff like that. And I was, you know, a volunteer CEO running a USAID social enterprise. And at the end of 2014, we had gotten a lot of awards and everything, right? So it didn't help there in terms of ego. But what, what had happened in those two years, it kind of dismantled my thinking around equality, dismantled my thinking around, you know, fair trade. Because what was interesting is we were buying crops like potatoes, barley, coffee, and you were paying $12 for a latte that said fair trade Congo on it, which is, in my opinion, totally not true. <laughs> a little controversial, but I speak my mind. I'm at a point Please. in life where I can. That's right. And at the end of 2014, I got into a fight. And, and that kind of defines me today, which is, um, and this is exactly 20 years after my Boston banking incident, right. right? Which is that this mama farmer, women are smarter than men. We already know that. It's just a fact. And I tell people, if you disagree, jump off the call. But what was interesting is that this mother wanted to open a bank account because, you know, she had seen 50 years of horror, but she was growing crops. So I thought it was brilliant. So we went with her to the local bank to open a bank account. And the bank said no. And I was, you know, I'm, I'm, I grew up poor. So I'm the first one to get into a fight, right? Because it's just survival skills, right? And the argument unfolded because the guy said, I cannot bank her because she didn't have paperwork. Bring her husband, bring her son. And I'm like, wait a minute, right? She is like your perfect supply chain vendor. She has harvest. She has seen horrors. She's surviving on a dollar ninety a day. I couldn't make it a minute on my own, right? Mm. And and but you know, in, in places like this, it, things kind of can t- tend to potentially get violent. And the guy said, "Look, I can't bank her, but how about this? I'll bank you." That's where the name comes from. And and it just punched me so hard that I I just lost it. And and I quit. I quit. The next day I quit. I said, I can't, I can't be this volunteer CEO because deep down in my heart, we had failed that mother. Although we were getting awards and everything, we had failed that mother because there's a flaw in the global supply chain that hit me in the face that day, which is there are millions, if not a billion people who work so hard in our global supply chain, grow our coffee. You know, they're, they're mining our cobalt for our iPhones or they're picking up your plastic and paper and it all comes into the supply chain. Right. 
but that mother is invisible. So I want to talk, that's a good question uh, or, or a jump off point for this next question because you, you mentioned in Boston when you could open that bank account, that was a big deal for you because I can't remember exactly how you put it, but basically that's the day you became, you became visible and someone saw you. And, and so a big day, but you know, I can only imagine it's one thing to take, to to take rejection and, and to kind of have that moment where you feel invisible as part of your journey. But then it's gotta be much worse to see someone else get rejected and declined and, and, um, and not get the opportunity that everyone should have. I mean, it's got to be worse when you see it happen to someone else sitting right there beside you. Oh, absolutely. And it was, for me, it was, it was just it, from a technology standpoint, a technical standpoint, I was, wait a minute, I've made money on other people's data all my life, right, mm-hmm. at that point. And I said, this is the perfect CRM, customer relationship management customer. This is the perfect supply chain, right? Which means that there's no reason that this mother who has been growing harvest, that I'm paying $12 for a latte, in New York, right. forget the bankability, right? We'll get to that in a second. What's, what's missing is she cannot prove her existence in this supply chain. Mm. And because she can't prove her existence in the supply chain, she does not have leverage. It's the easiest example I use, right? If I told you, Scott, walk across the street to a car dealership, right? But you can't prove what you do. You can't prove your education. And for sure, you cannot show your pay stubs for the last six months. How do you think they'll treat you? Right. That's a that's that is a that, yeah. System and that's issue. the piece that that just I could not comprehend. I'm like, why? Because at this, on the other end, I saw all these people claiming tip the farmer, right? Super traceable, transparent supply chain. But there's a keyword that was missing. Mm. This supply chain may have been traceable and transparent, but it was not equitable. Mm. Okay, so we're gonna. Uh, I want to dive in a little deeper to what Bank U does, but before I do, Jenny, based on what we've shared there, what based on what uh, Ashish has, has shared there, and based on your own personal experience when it comes to banking, I, that's something you um, you hadn't shared with me earlier when you moved to South Africa. What really sticks out to that? I don't know. It, it's an, it's part injustice, but part system breakdown. It's like the worst of, yeah. of both worlds, right? Yeah, and I think that in a country like South Africa, where we've got such disparity, it's what Ashish is doing is it comes home more because you know that. You know that there are some people who you can do, you can pay by money money wallet. There are some people who you can't because they don't have the right kind of phone. And they're never going to have the right kind of phone. But, you know, everybody just assumes that technology works for everybody. And it doesn't. And I, I really like that thing about data democracy. I think that that's something that, you know, you've got digital dexterity, you've got the data democracy, you've got all this in the digital divide. You know, it's it's all here and it's all happening and it affects every single one of us. But some, some of the population are thriving because of it and others are constrained because of it. And I think that's the, that's the thing that I think I, I guess we're going to hear that you're yeah. working to sort of level that out so that those who who don't and can't, you know, myself, we live in a, an environment where we have a PO box for our postal address. You can't prove where you live with a PO box. So I can't prove to my bank where I live. And, you know, I, I, I've got everything else I can prove, but I can't show them where I can live. So without, in the old days, without showing my marriage certificate, I wouldn't have been able to open a bank account. Mm. So it's, it's, it's 
it's across the board. And, you know, as the daughter of a bank manager, this this conversation is is really very, very close to home Mm. on lots of levels. Thank you for sharing. If I may just quickly add, right, there's a gender lens, right? And this is something that, uh, and I'm very honest, it happened to me last week in Ecuador, right, is that women farmers work extremely hard. Men probably do too, but why not pay the mama farmer who grew the harvest? Even though she doesn't have a smartphone, she has an SMS phone, right? And I think, you know, what I'm trying to get to, and it's not about BenQ or me, it's about if you are the mama farmer or you are the mama waste picker, it's your account, period. There is no argument there. And we need to do that. Agreed. Um, All right, so BenQ. Let's get back to, um, let's level set. And as we were talking pre-show, uh, I'm on the short end of the IQ stick amongst the three of us here. So let's put it in, in terms I can understand. <laughs> and, and our audience that may not be, you know, technologists, may not be blockchain experts. What does BenQ do? Absolutely. So in, in it's, it is a great question, right? And, and what you'll hear from me is nothing about cryptocurrency, right? I have a very basic pedestrian definition of blockchain that matters to the mother, Right. But let me kind of take a step back, kind of define the problem and then why blockchain. Right. Love it. If you put yourself in that mother's shoes and she is growing barley and she sells barley from tier zero to think about her as tier zero. And then she sells that barley to a cooperative that is a tier one or level one classic supply chain. And then they sell it to a transporter and they sell it to an aggregator and then it makes itself to a brewery. In that simple supply chain where the crop is being harvested and moving five streams up in a non-blockchain world, right? Let's just level set. When that mother sells the bag of barley, who has the proof of that sale? Everybody other than the mother, Mm. number one. So what the mother then is getting is three, three disadvantages. One, no proof that she sold the barley. No way to guarantee that the price was fair price. And number three, because of the first two, she can't sit with the bank and say, hey, I exist. I exist in this supply chain. I shouldn't pay 40% interest rate on a dollar just because I'm poor and I cannot prove, right? Right. And traditional data systems are one-sided. I, you know, I grew up, (laughs) you know, in, in traditional data systems. So we take other people's data, put it into a database the underlying last four letters of the word database, B-A-S-E, and we own it, right? This is just plain English, right? Right. No gobbledygook. (laughs) You don't own your data. If I am your coffee company, I own your data. Right. End of story, right? Now, if you wanted to level, level the playing field, then the most fundamental thing you need to do is that that mother should have an equal copy of the data that she can prove that she sold barley without anybody questioning that, correct? Mm, yeah. No sure. technology here, right? Right. So that's where, when I quit my uh, volunteer role in 2014, I spent a year looking for, and I'm, I make fun of Indians because I'm Indian, looking for <laughs> another Indian who had an app. And I found a lot of apps for poor people. And this part is critical. Right, because this will get then clarify the definition of blockchain. And every app I found was the same old, same old, which is my 30 years of career, which is great, you're poor, I have your data, and I'll monetize your data, but you are always at the mercy of my access to your data. Right. You don't. 
right? So that's when after a year, I landed on blockchain. The cryptocurrency piece, I didn't care, honestly, right? That mother on the Congo-Zambia border needs the 40 kwacha so the kid will have food tonight and not die. I'm not being, you know, dramatic. It's just a fact. I saw that in Colombia last year. You need pesos so the kid can eat, plain and simple. No crypto there. That's when I realized that the traditional systems don't work because it's a data dictatorship, no matter how you look at it. But there's a fundamental definition of blockchain that I gravitated to, which is super plain English, which is if two or more people participate in a transaction, both parties rightfully get a copy of the transaction. It is vanilla, it's pedestrian, it is as plain as it gets. That's when it hit me, wait a minute, aha, if I use this blockchain, this is back in 2016, and the mother has an SMS phone, right? She does not have a smartphone. That's a key component. Why not use this thing called blockchain to give her own copy? And at the same time, that copy will exist in the supply chain, which means nobody can deny it. Right. Right. So recap, simple definition. Both parties get a copy of the same transaction. And what BankU does is enables that in a way that when the mother comes and sells, here's my 40 kilos of barley at 16% moisture, and she sells it to the first buying center. We run a software as a service company, plain, simple, salesforce.com, NetSuite, plain and simple. Runs in the cloud, but what's most important, it's all on blockchain in its basic definition. The mama on her SMS phone, no smartphone needed, in the local language, gets a confirmation of the price, the quality, the quantity. Two more things, I promise I'll stop. And it's in the local currency. And especially in Africa, if she's using mobile money, like M-Pesa, right. she gets the money directly on her SMS phone, right? So in a very simple recap, what BankU does is we are a for-profit, for-purpose, simple, simple software company, software as a service. And all we do is ensure traceability and transparency but we make it equitable yep. so that the mother can say I exist and nobody can deny my right of my existence anymore. So, so some, of the, some of the key things that BankU offers that I picked up there, Jenny, and I'd love to get your take too. So access to information, which is, is currency in the information age for sure. In the tech, BankU meets those that need where they are with, the, with SMS technology versus you know, 5G and what else. Local currency, which is r- really important. And then overall, the visibility that the platform is powering across supply chain, whether it's visibility for the farmer or downstream, so to speak. And one last thing before I uh, get your take on what you've heard. You know, there might be some folks listening, maybe, that information's power, yada, yada, yada. It's just a mantra. Let me tell you this. So I made, and y'all stick with me just for a second. It, it, it connects, I promise you. So I made an insurance claim last fall because we had a, a, a major problem with our roof. So the insurance company I was with at that time, because we made some changes, they sent out a inspector and I brought this inspector into my home. He took pictures, measurements, the whole nine yards, got on the roof, you know, all, you know, a wealth of data. Well, unbeknownst to me, he took that data, made his report to the insurance company, and I never got a copy. They refused to release it. So naturally, when they made their decision, their negative decision, I had nothing to challenge that decision with. And and so what I'm hearing yeah. 
this story of what you're empowering these farmers. That's where my mind goes is, is, you know, with data that is so real power in this day and age that you can stand up for yourself and make a case, grow your business, challenge bad decisions, you name it. And without it, you've got nothing except sadly and non-dramatically a family that goes without. So, um, but Jenny, that's some of what I heard as as she was explaining. What'd you hear? It's also security. You know, it's that it's that thing that from that initial transaction, the record is there. The record is logged. It's not on a scrappy piece of paper that's going to get lost or worse still is written in pencil or is is done with ink that's going to fade. It's actually there for everybody to see. And that responsibility of keeping that record is no longer the responsibility of the person who's actually got to do all the work as well and raise the family and, and, and. It's part of that business transaction that's it's safe, secure, and transparent. And it yeah. makes all the sense in the world. Agreed. Well said. As always, Jenny. Okay, so let's talk about, I want to make sure you, you, we feel like we've gotten the full value prop for Bank You out there. But you've got, as you mentioned prior to, I think prior to us uh, kicking off the recording, y'all have had some recent, you've had a ton of recent wins, semi-recent wins. I mean, y'all are on the move. So so what's next for the company, Ashish? So, you know, for me, the, there is no next in the sense that I have a personal goal that I've committed to with our board, which is 100 million people on our platform out of extreme poverty and a hundred million dollar profitable software business. That's, there is no next until I get to that. And, you know, right now we are at about 2 million people on our platform and we're $4 million in profitable revenue. So we're profitable and stuff like that. So I think for me, more than the next piece, because that's the journey I am on, right? Blinders on, that's, we're going to do that. What's important is to really get companies and brands to recognize that they owe it to their supply chains downstream this equity while they're making all these sustainability claims is is for me the big thing next is to get people to recognize that independently and forget me as a company or anything that people just need to recognize that you know i'm hoping that some of your thought leadership and some of what you're doing and and some of your great work things are turning you know, when I was in manufacturing and supplying metal parts of all things to automotive companies, we got hammered a lot, right? Because those com- some of those companies we dealt with, they were the ones, they were the customer and they let you know that every time and, and <laughs> they beat you up all the time. However, to your point, Ashish, you know, responsibilities in the supply chain are, that is a two-way street and it always, it always should be, right? But, it, but oftentimes... <laughs> It hasn't it hasn't felt that way. So I love how, you know, there's a lot of dynamics that are that are helping make it really truly become a real two way street. And it seems like Bank U, from what I'm hearing, is a tailwind in those efforts to make it a, a, a global supply chain that works for everybody. Especially with the sustainability and the accountability side of things, where I liked your comment about organizations being accountable 
if they if they go the sustainability route because we know there are so many of the large organizations that are saying they do things in the most sustainable way which they don't at all but tracking and tracing the way in which it's done mm. is what's going to make all the difference to, mm. to to everything everything that we buy everything we consume and you know in this age of ever increasing conscious consumerism I think that you know to be able to talk about knowing and understanding who that very first person is who sold that first coffee bean or barley or whatever is people are going to want to know that in Jenny, the future. That's right. And and you bring up the point that we've been talking about, you know, giving information to farmers, right. And that portion of the supply chain, but what's beautiful about what we're all talking about and what, what bank bank you and other uh, actors are doing is it provides that critical, accurate information to the biggest part, I would argue, of the supply chain, which is the consumer that's making decisions based on what, you know, the the marketing, the sustainability marketing, Jenny, you're kind of talking to that sometimes you can't take to the bank, uh, no pun intended. Okay, so uh, this is, uh, you know, this could be a five-hour episode, Jenny and Ashish. It's really, it's really <laughs> It touches on so if many I can quickly things. add, though, yeah, what you yeah. can take to the bank is the profit with purpose, right? And mm-hmm. I'm a big believer in in that. There's a room for, you know, pure NGOs, government, business, but I think businesses have to take the responsibility profit with purpose. I'll give you two quick examples, right? And it's not again about us. It's about Coca-Cola is a good one, uh, and, and Jenny, you know this in South Africa, right? They started a rollout with us because of the EPR compliance, extended producer responsibility and things like that, right? But their head of sustainability, David Drew, was very clear. Look, I want to know how much material is in our supply chain for recycling, but I want to know who the waste picker is, right? And, and, and it's not either or, right? I, I, want to, I, want to, I want to drive more returnables. I want to drive more recycling material. You know, they work with Petco, which is the industry organization. And this mama in a landfill outside of Johannesburg through an SMS can say, you know what, I exist, right? That's a, it's so fundamental and doesn't take away from the profitability of the brand. Or last week I was in Ecuador, one of the fastest growing beer brands there that's locally sourced. It's gonna, the consumer is going to love it when they see the QR code that says that's the mother and she got paid, right? It's not this fake you know, brochure, right? And that balance can be met, yep. right? You know, and that balance is, is, is so important for it to be met. I mean, it kind of goes back to that two-way street that we're still aspiring to get to in reality for everybody, whether it's the small family farm or whether it's the, you know, the, the larger, you know, tier two suppliers, you name it. Um, okay. So, Jenny, as much as I, I'm very begrudgingly going to move us right along, you're going to ask about one of our favorite questions to Ashish here now, right? Yeah, so I've got to ask you what eureka moments have you had? But I've already heard quite a lot. But yes. in the last in the last two years, with with the difficulties of the pandemic, et cetera, et cetera, all around the world, what what real have you had any? I'm sure, I, but you look like someone who has a eureka moment every day. But what <laughs> what real eureka moment can you share with us that? not been brought about because of the pandemic, but because of the way in which we're all having to live and the excess poverty and challenges that that are, are taking place in the world around us at the moment and how we can alleviate them. So I don't know if it's a eureka moment, but there's there's kind of three three things that have happened, right? Which which I've learned from. So it's it's me learning yeah. more than this aha moment. And yeah. one was about three years ago when we added the farmers on the Zambia Congo border. 
And when, the, when we did the initial rollout uh, with these mama farmers, it was all cash-based, right? Even if it was SMS. And one day this mama came to me and said, I love what you're doing, but the rats still eat the money. And I was just like, man, I grew up in India. The rats only ate my pockets, right? And But, you know, then she explained to me, it's the husband, the brother, and the son. And she said, if you deposit money on our SMS phone, it'll make it easier. What was interesting is that we took our feedback and we rolled out mobile money, right, through M-Pesa, MTN, and Airtel. But here's the eureka moment for me, which I learned from. The first transaction, the very first transaction we did, right, and I somebody took a film about it and I watch it once a week just to remind me how smart this woman is, which is we, she sells the crop, the transaction goes through and her SMS phone rings with the money on it and she starts laughing. And I'm thinking she's laughing at me because I'm stupid. People laugh at me and I've gotten used to it. But you know why she was laughing? Is she turned around, and this part is key, and paid for her school fees and her solar home system. Think about the intelligence of that mother to leverage that none of us had figured out, right? So that kind of, for me, was this aha moment saying, wait a minute, I'm a nobody in this equation, but she's figured it out, right? The leverage moment. And then the other two ones are kind of intersecting, which is, you know, inventory has become just in case in the pandemic. And, and I think companies need to think about the just in case so that that mother's harvest doesn't go bad in a pandemic, right? And then the third one, which is breaks my heart and, you know, trying really hard to address it, and we are doing a lot of work there, is child labor. Mm-hmm. Child labor is just on the rampage. And, you know, again, this is public information, so I speak about it publicly. Yet companies like Cargill and Nestle will stand in front of the U.S. Supreme Court and say, we don't have anything to do with child labor in Malawi, public case, because we don't know who the farmer is. And I'm like, come on, man. Mm. Right. And, and for me, that in the pandemic has created more child labor. Pandemic has pushed 100 million more people into extreme poverty and gender inequity. So we got to fight harder. And that's an important point. You know, we had Tim, Tim Nelson on with us last week. And, and a couple, by the time this publishes a couple weeks ago, he leads, co-founded and leads Hope for Justice, which is a global nonprofit that um, his mission to, is to eradicate slavery. And blew our mind that in 2021, according to their research and you know their boots on the ground and what they do, that slave, to your point, Ashish, you said with child labor. Well, slavery is also on the rise. It's growing in 2021. That is, that, that blow, I can't believe I uttered those words. I mean, it's just, it, it is, um, it's, it is a travesty does not do it uh, justice. It is a human crisis, humanity crisis. And we, we and supply chain leaders, as we've talked about, um, not only are they in a unique position to do something about it, right? With this, this, these newfound, ways of getting true visibility, but they have a responsibility to do something about it. So, and you um, can solve it, right? I mean, the, the quick thing I'll say, you can solve it. Like, and again, you know, we do it. We connect the school attendance system to blockchain. Mm. So if the child is not in class, where is the kid, right? Under data privacy guidelines and stuff like that. So a lot of people take things about child labor or forced labor, and then they'll do a study. <laughs> I'm like, we're beyond studies, guys. You, that kid has to be in class. It's your brand's responsibility. If you're buying the cobalt, that powers your smart device. Right. You can't just open a school and claim victory. Right. That's a good point. Great point. Jenny, you're going to... Um, yeah, I was just going to add that this is where 
what what you've created and your team, Scott, is just so, so incredibly important because you continue to give a voice and you shine the light on or the dark light or the whatever on these sorts of things that are not talked about in supply chain management. And I think that that's where collaborations with organizations like ours, like with with you, Ashish, with with everybody that you talk to, the, the wider the net is spread, the louder we can talk and the more people will hear us. And that these things, these these terrible things that should never be existing, like slave labor, like child labor, they just shouldn't exist anymore. And and hopefully that being supply chain that touches every part of our lives, somebody, somebody will take note and one person listening to this might make a difference. So thank you for what you do too, Scott. Well, thank yes. you, Jenny. It, it's hey, it, it takes a village, and and <laughs> exactly you know, the world the world's gotten so much smaller uh, here in the information age, and it and it allows the type of collaboration and truth seeking. A, a pa- pandemic positivity yes. is being able. It's made our world more accessible because we've all adapted to online and embraced mm. it. Excellent yes. point. Well, and it's our honor to, to, to power the platform and, and empower the dialogue and discussions. It, it's that's our mission here, Ashish. Uh, and we can we're certainly kinder spirits. I think all three of us in the uh, the critical missions that we're on. All right. So, as much as I um, hate to start winding down this conversation, this is a this is good stuff. This is um, this is my manna from heaven this week, Jenny and Ashish. <laughs> this is good stuff. All right, so what? Um, let's talk about you know beyond. Gosh, we've we, we've covered so much ground, but what else? Ashish, maybe as we start to wind down, what's one thing that you're got your finger on the pulse of across the you know spectrum of global business that you're tracking day in and day out right now that we haven't talked about? So I'm honestly I'm tracking three commodities. Just being very honest, right? Which is agriculture commodities mining commodities, right? So basically anything in the agriculture and mining sector, and then anything related to plastic PET. Here's why, and I don't have the exact numbers, but there's about 500 million to 700 million people who live in extreme poverty who are in those three sectors in the world today. Yet you and I and all of everybody listening are consuming products that are made by these people. And so I keep a close watch on who are the companies, not to shame them or anything like that, but just say, if you're claiming sustainable goals, do not forget that mama farmer. Do not forget that mama waste picker or that kid that is being forced into mining. Yeah, the the mining, I think, you know, mining, when you think about topics that where there's going to be a lot more conversation and hopefully action around, I think of mining, I think of water. Uh, we were talking with some water. friends in, in the Western U.S. yesterday about how God, it's amazing that what's going on in many places around the world from a drought standpoint. And it feels yes. like we're going to get to a breaking point and it's going to be a reckoning. And water doesn't seem to be, you know, top of the conversations that, that folks are having. But Nevertheless, uh, I can appreciate those three. Uh, you said agricultural, mining, and then plastics and PET, which um, no shortage of challenges we have that uh, lie, lie ahead of us. Well, not even ahead of us. We're living it right now, right? right? <laughs> so, it's live. Um, all right. So before I make sure folks know how to connect with you both, Jenny, what else? I mean, when when in your purview, I know y'all, y'all have got a big 
conference in August, your annual conference coming up. Outside of some of the topics that Ashisha shared and some of those that we've talked through, what what do you think is going to be um, a big part of the, the conversations during during the conference? Uh, I mean, risk, supply chain risk, and and we've seen that like never before this week or last week in in South Africa yes. with the horrific um, activities of, of violence that have gone on and the looting and warehouses being destroyed, schools being destroyed, etc. How how did anybody plan for that? And and that's definitely all around the world. You know, there have been all sorts of things that have gone on in the last 18 months that I know a lot of companies weren't prepared for. And how do we become more prepared for those? And how do we protect our supply chains against it? And one of the big missions that we're sort of, you know, going out there and one of the things that I want to be able to to really give the biggest message for the, from the conference is that we have to, as, as ordinary people, we have to learn to trust in supply chain management and in the people who manage them because there's so much unnecessary panic and worry. Um, and, and really that that's it from sustainability to risk to some basic best practices to all sorts of stuff, you know, just because it's just because the events online doesn't mean that we shouldn't still be educating and educate education is not just found in textbooks. It's from people like you guys. Mm. So. That's, that's a t-shirtism, Jenny. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and I wholeheartedly agree with you and I appreciate you and this Apex organization and all the work you do so that folks can lean into those conversations and, and learn things that aren't in textbooks. Let's face it. Some of those textbooks are, they age very fast. Even they, old. Yeah, they get published last year and they're already uh, light years behind. But nonetheless, uh, folks, make sure you can check out everything that that event and what SafePix does at safepix.org. And, and Jenny Houts, would you suggest folks connect with you? Uh, LinkedIn or Twitter, Jenny Froome. It's very easy to find me, F-R-O-O-M-E, not V-R-O-O-M-E, which is what happens in most Dutch-speaking companies, the countries like South Africa used to be. So I went from being Froome, which I thought was a really easy name, to Froome. <laughs> yeah, so it's easy to find me. I'm quite active on LinkedIn and Twitter. Yes, Jenny Froome, and we'll make sure those those links are in the show notes. We really appreciate what you Yes, Sapix, Sapix.org too. Okay, so she's same question for you. How can folks connect with you? And uh, I tell you, we've said this about a handful of folks through the uh, hundreds of episodes we've done here. I feel like, Jenny, we could attach some heavy-duty electricity cables to a sheesh and probably power some small smart cities around the world, right? So yep. how can folks connect with you, Ashish? Well, I, you know, I think on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, it's just B-A-N-Q-U, bankq.co, or Ashish, A-S-H-I-S-H, Gadness, G-A-D-N-I-S, to any of the social media is just fine. But I think the biggest connection is, is you know, with the two of you. So just super blessed. I Beyond blessed. Thank you. Well, I love it. We'll jump on talk shop and journey and mission and purpose with you any point in time. Uh, again, I appreciate the kindred spirits here. Jenny, thanks for your facilitation. We're going to keep our eye on the, the Bank You story as it continues to unfold. Two mean folks, part of the Bank You community. And I think I saw 45 countries. I could be wrong. Ashish, is that close? 48 now. 48. Wow. Hey, you added three. It. Outstanding. I'll tell you, on the move. Uh, big thanks to Ashish Godness, uh, found, uh, co-founder and CEO. Thank you for joining us here today. And of course, Jenny Froome, COO of SAPIX. Big thanks to her continued uh, leadership, facilitation, and friendship. Okay, folks, hopefully you enjoyed 
this conversation as much as we have. Um, I tell you, I look forward to doing this in person at some point too. We'll break bread and enjoy each other's company in person. We'll get there soon enough. Uh, but hey, if you enjoy conversations like this, be sure to find us at supplychainnow.com. Find us uh, wherever you get your podcast from. Subscribe so you don't miss a thing. But hey, most importantly, if you're listening, if, you, if you've made it this far, do good, give forward, be the change that's needed. Be just like Jenny and Ashish and we'll all be in a better place. And we'll see you next time right here at Supply Chain Now. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for being a part of our Supply Chain Now community. Check out all of our programming at supplychainnow.com and make sure you subscribe to Supply Chain Now anywhere you listen to podcasts. And follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. See you next time on Supply Chain Now.